Good morning. It is wonderful to see so many of you, uh, old friends, old faces, um, some surprises here this morning. What a blessing. And new faces. And uh, special thanks to Casey and to the members of the King's Cross Presbyterian Church for condescending to have a lowly Baptist in your sanctuary this morning to give you the word. Let me pray for us and then we'll look at God's word together. God, we pray now, as we've sung earlier, that your Holy Spirit would come in power and teach us. Take your word and take my words and my attempts to convey your word and teach our hearts. Speak into our deafness, give sight to our blindness, and do it for your glory now, we pray in Jesus' name and All God's people said, Amen. Joseph had a comfortable job on staff at a megachurch. When an opportunity came for Joseph to plant a new church one town over, Joseph was really torn at first. Ministry was good, hours were good, pay was good, family time was good, life was good. Joseph had wondered if he should be a lead pastor at some point. He did, after all, particularly enjoy preaching. But planting had never seriously crossed his mind. That's what he thought the really brave um, or really dumb pastors did. Or that's what he thought the really brave and really dumb pastors did. But when a small group of people Joseph really respected and enjoyed their company and their friendship approached Joseph, suggesting that he be the one to lead this new church plant in the town over, and even more than that, suggested that They were in. They were coming with him. At the end of the day, Joseph couldn't resist. They were sure he was the guy. They were coming with him. Joseph couldn't say no. And so a new church was eventually born, and Joseph was its founding pastor. Things started well enough. Everybody was excited. People sitting on the sidelines in the more established church were now holding babies in the kids' ministry. Giving was strong. The church saw its first few converts. And slowly but steadily, that little church was, was growing. Everything took a turn in year four. The comfortable facility which the church had been renting from its inception uh, informed Joseph and the church that they would be kicking them out because they could no longer house a religious institution with the way the culture was going. And so this four-year-old and now really tired church was now going to have to turn nomadic. Once again, very different to turn nomadic year four than year zero, year one. Joseph learned of a secret sin in the life of a prominent church member who had helped to start the church. And Joseph had spent months and months trying to sort it out, trying to walk with this member who sometimes seems really contrite and repentant and who at other times seemed really angry, even accusing Joseph. That member eventually left, and then a couple of other key families left with him, feeling Joseph had mishandled the situation. Oh, and then a couple of other key families left with them, and then more key families came and met with Joseph, expressing concerns over how it seems like now our little church is starting to shrink. Of course, Joseph wondered if and when they would be gone next. 
Joseph was now on the brink. He'd been running hard for four years. He wasn't exactly sure what burnout was, but he thought this must be it. And then one Tuesday, after another discouraging day at the office, Joseph came home to his crying wife, who informed him that their middle child had been diagnosed that day with a severe learning disability, confirming their worst fears and meaning, of course, a really hard and really challenging road ahead. Late that night, Joseph sent an email to his elders. He told them he felt he couldn't lead this church anymore. He told them he was at his end and felt he had nothing left to give. Even more, he told them that he not only couldn't do this anymore, he shouldn't do this anymore. All this suffering, all this pain, all these people leaving, it was obvious to Joseph and clearly obvious to the elders that God wasn't in this. Maybe Joseph wasn't the guy after all. So he clicked sin. Now I wonder what you would say to Joseph if you received that email or if you sat down for coffee with him and heard all that I just shared. Maybe you'd tell him, Joseph, things, honestly, things can only get better, so just hang in there. Maybe you'd really sympathize with him and say, yeah, your wife's suffering, your family's suffering, you're suffering, the church is suffering. Maybe it is a good idea for you to move on. What would you say to Joseph? In our passage this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, which the brother just read for us before I came up here, I wonder if you noticed a word. If you have to cheat and look back at your Bible now, that's totally okay. But I wonder if there was a word which stood out to you. I don't know if Presbyterians are allowed to talk back to the pastor, but that's a genuine question. I've been training our congregation for three years to talk back to me, and now I'm having to slow them down a little bit because that can easily get out of hand. Is there a word which stands out to you in this passage? Comfort. Second Corinthians has been called the letter of comfort. This paragraph, which we're really going to camp out in, verses 3 through 7 in chapter 1, has been called the paragraph of comfort. Because as you can see in your passage, Paul says the word comfort in just a few verses ten times. In fact, the entire letter of Corinthians, there are towering twin themes running throughout the entire letter, suffering and amazingly running alongside that comfort. And comfort coming through and in suffering. And so that's what I want to give to you this morning. Honored to be here, always honored to come as a guest preacher, but I want to give to you this morning is the comfort of God from God's word. So if you're a note taker, I'm going to show you four things from this passage. I'm going to show you the source of comfort. I'm going to show you the arena of comfort. I'm going to show you the ministry of comfort. And finally, we're going to look together at the hope of comfort. Source of comfort, arena of comfort, ministry of comfort, and hope of comfort. Let's begin together with the source of comfort of our comfort. 2 Corinthians begins here in this passage that we're camping out this morning is, is actually a very typical, a very normal 
beginning to a New Testament letter. It's actually a, a form of uh, benediction, which is borrowed from even uh, Jewish literature or Jewish synagogues. So over in Ephesians, which I understand you guys just finished preaching through, Ephesians begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You might remember that. First Peter, over in First Peter, Peter begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again. And our passage this morning begins, I hope you're catching the ringing familiarity, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, and Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. The people of God have rebelled, have tasted judgment, exile, they've mourned, they've offered lamentations, they've hoped, they've, they've warred, they've been at battle, they've lost battles, they've been exiled again, they've waited and they've wondered and they've longed. And then the prophet Isaiah, after hitting a lot of judgment and more judgment and more exile to come, he turns, he pivots in the middle or towards the end of his book, chapter 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort, comfort my people says your God. A new day was coming, Isaiah is saying, a day of comfort. Isaiah goes on to speak of God coming down. God is going to come down. The warrior God is going to come down. The suffering servant is going to come down. God is going to come down to fight on behalf of his people, and God is going to come down and suffer on behalf of his people, all to bring comfort. Luke chapter 2, we read, maybe every Christmas, of a man called Simeon. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Old righteous Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That word consolation could also be translated as comfort. It's the same word Paul uses ten times in our passage of Israel. Simeon was waiting for the comfort of Israel. He was waiting for Isaiah's promise to come through. And so Simeon made his way to the temple and found Mary and Joseph. And he picked up and he held in his hands the comfort, the consolation of Israel as God had come through on his promise and then he died. Is that how you think of God? Father of mercies, Paul says. God of all comfort. That is the glory of the new covenant. And the messianic age which has dawned in the Lord Jesus and which we are living in today, right now, we're enjoying together if we trust in Christ. That's who God is to us and for us in Christ if we've believed on Christ. Right now I'm working with a mom and a daughter and the daughter has fallen on really, really difficult, like gut-wrenching, worst-case scenario times. And the mom is literally expending every resource she has on her young adult daughter just to help her make it. She's sleeping with her every single night, which means she's not sleeping most nights. 
She's driving her around everywhere. She's rescuing her when she needs rescuing. She's spending lots of money on her. She's doing everything she could possibly do. And this daughter is consumed with guilt and condemnation. She feels it towards God. She's confessed Christ as Lord just recently, but she, she's struggling so much with assurance of salvation because how could God possibly love a wreck of a life like me? She feels it towards her mom and she feels it towards her dad. I must be such a failure and such a disappointment. And so last week I was on the phone with mom and daughter and she was in a really bad place. Daughter was. And I, I asked her if she had noticed all that her mom has been for her and to her and doing for her through this agonizing season. And she, she said with tears to me, yes. And I asked her why she thought her mom did all that. And of course, her mom does all that. Why? Because her mom loves her more than anything and would do anything for her. If she gets out of this place and comes back to it again, her mom would do it all over again, even as agonizing it is for the mom. And I asked her if she thought her mom begrudged her for that. And of course the answer is no. And listen to me. That's who God is for us in Christ. Not miserly. Not, yes, accepting us, but constantly disappointed in us. Not ever, for a moment, regretting taking us as his own adopted sons and daughters in Christ. That's who God is for us in this new covenant age. The God of all comfort and the Father of mercies. Is that how you think about God? In Christ, God has smiled upon us. In Christ, comfort has come to us. Secondly, let's look at the arena of comfort. Notice Paul says in verse 4, strangely, I think it's strange, God who comforts us in all of our affliction. So when you think of comfort, what comes to mind? I'll tell you what comes to mind for me. Let me paint a little picture for you. It's uh, really, um, maybe not that profound, but to me, it's glorious. Here's what I think of when I think of comfort. I think of a night where we are at home and we don't have anything on the schedule, which is not that often, and we have dinner with the kids and one of us cleans the kitchen and the other of us takes care of the kids, getting them ready for bed. And then when it's all over, we go downstairs and we have a sectional couch, and my wife lays on her side of the sectional couch, and I lay on my side of the sectional couch. And that's it. <laughs> you thought I was building to something? I was, and that was it. Me laying on my piece of the sectional couch, always in the same spot. Sometimes we talk, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we play on our phones, sometimes we watch a show. It doesn't matter. It's all magical to me. Why? Because life is kind of crazy right now. We've got young kids. We've got another younger one on the way. We're still in the early days of church plant with a pandemic interrupting a year and a half in. Lots of meetings, elders meetings, youth groups, small groups. Pastors are great at making meetings. Kids are exhausting. 
It's too hot to go outside, so the kids are bored. That's my safe space. When I think of, when I think of comfort, I think of that. And it feels all the more beautiful when we go for days or sometimes a week or two without having that. Maybe you have a particular place or time or situation or person that you associate with comfort. I think that's beautiful. You can mock it if you like, but I think it's beautiful. But that's not at all how the Bible speaks of comfort. And that's nothing like what Paul is talking about this morning when he keeps speaking of comfort. And this is so important. In our world, comfort is basically, we think of comfort, we define comfort basically as the absence of suffering, right? So suffering is what prevents us from, keeps us from comfort, and comfort is what we have when suffering is gone. And that's why many of us spend so much of our lives just wanting to avoid suffering, because what many of us, maybe most of us, most long for is comfort. So we often turn comfort then, by which we mean the absence of suffering or hardship, we turn that into an idol, which often brings with it materialism, because material things we think fuel, and we know they fuel our comfort, which is part of why we're often nervous wrecks, plagued by anxiety, because our vision of the good life is a life of comfort, which we mean absence of suffering, which we look to money to secure for us, along with relationships and maybe a few other things. We need to listen carefully to God's word when Paul says in verse 4 that the God of comfort comforts us where? In our affliction. Verse 7, where we read, we know, Paul says, that as you share in our sufferings, there you will also share in our comfort. Where do we find God's comfort? Where do we find God's comfort? However we define comfort, where do we find God's comfort? In our afflictions. In our world, comfort is the absence of suffering. It's, in a way, it's the opposite of suffering. In God's world, Suffering and comfort are co-workers. In God's world, suffering is the arena for God's comfort. The people in this room, I know not many of you, but the people in this room undoubtedly represent many different things, but all of us, all of us are sufferers. Sometimes we can too quickly discredit and discount legitimate sufferings like this is a contest and only if you're like at the level of I might get beheaded for the gospel does your suffering count that's not a good thing there are differences in sufferings and we should recognize that particularly when we're talking to people who are going through suffering but all suffering the, the bible it, it speaks of varied kinds of suffering here in second corinthians paul talks about suffering a lot and he's typically talking about persecutions near death experiences that he himself went through but over in first peter another letter notably about suffering the fiery trials that peter speaks of according to one writer represent inconveniences and occasional harassments now that sounds a lot more like us doesn't it the bible recognizes different kinds of suffering here in our passage you see paul acknowledging different kinds of suffering in verse 5 he speaks of sufferings he uses that word sufferings which throughout the New Testament refers typically to persecutions, even to death. But in verses 4 and verse 6, he speaks of afflictions. Different word, and this word is used throughout the New Testament often to refer to pain, whether that's physical pain or emotional, mental anguish. Could be translated as 
distress. We suffer in a, we're all sufferers, and we suffer in a wide variety of ways. There's the suffering of persecution, yes, mockery, imprisonment, beheading. There's suffering from pain. There's health suffering, cancer, Alzheimer's. There's emotional suffering, anxiety, depression. There's suffering from loss, experiencing change that you don't like, abandonment. There's suffering in the family, conflict within the family, estrangement from the family, watching your kids struggle to fit in. There's suffering of loneliness, to be friendless, to be spouseless, to taste betrayal. There's a suffering of unmet longings, lost dreams, lost community. And there's a suffering in aging if we live long enough, slowing down, facing death. And so many more that I'm not even mentioning, but listen, they all count. The Bible counts them all. We are sufferers, and until glory, suffering will shade this life. But until glory... God will meet us, especially there in suffering. That's the special place where God has made arrangements to always meet us with special supplies of grace and comfort. And you know what else? That's amazingly true because God himself has been there. That's the story of the gospel, is it not? That God himself came down to save us By suffering, by entering into the suffering which our sins deserved, even death itself, taking on the full punishment, all the wrath of God, which our sins had accrued over time, our sins in the past, our sins today, our sins in the future. And Jesus, God in flesh, came into this earth to suffer the wrath for those sins that we might not have to. If we've trusted in Christ, I wonder if you've trusted in Christ and taken him as your Lord and Savior this morning. And I wonder if you have not, what keeps you from plunging all into the Lord Jesus by faith? He has suffered for us. And on the other side, Paul's saying he will meet us. God of all comfort will meet us in our sufferings. After all, he has been there. Kids in the room, if I could speak to you directly for just a moment. You're going to find out sooner or later, if you haven't already, that life is hard. And when it gets hard, it might not be because you're doing it wrong. That's one of the hard facts of life. I'm sorry to be Debbie Downer this morning, but life is hard. But when life gets hard... You can find God in a special way in those hard times if you'll look to him through the Lord Jesus. Parents, if I could speak to you especially for a moment, what do you really want for your kids? None of us want our kids to suffer, of course. But because of that, we can sometimes make the point of our parenting, or at least this is what it seems like, the point of our parenting, our job description as parents, is to somehow bubble our kids off from hardship. Which, you know what the worst kind of job in the world is? A job that cannot possibly be done. 
It's impossible. Suffering is inevitable. Of course we protect them. Of course we do all we can to prevent them from suffering. But our job is not to bubble them off from discomfort. Our job is to teach them how to find God's comfort and how to endure when they do suffer because they're going to. It's better to be comforted by God. This is a hard but amazing truth. It's better to be comforted by God than to be comfortable apart from God. Suffering is the arena the stage where we find God's comfort. Thirdly, let me show you the ministry of comfort. The ministry of comfort. When Martin Luther died, there was a young man, not a young man, I don't know why I said young man, there was a middle-aged man in the room making record of everything which was happening and also consoling the dying reformer. You've probably not heard of him, but his name was Justice Jonas. And he was a close friend and associate of Luther's, a fellow helper in the Reformation. He preached Luther's funeral after Luther did die, offering comfort to those who were mourning the death of a hero. Well, four years before, Justice Jonas is sitting in the room with Luther as he's dying. Luther had written an affectionate letter to Jonas as Jonas was burying his own wife in her untimely death. The letter was full of tender sympathies, but also really bold reminders of gospel truth. Let me read you just a line or two from this letter. Luther wrote to his friend as his wife had died. He said, although, Luther says, although according to the flesh, the parting has been very bitter. Nevertheless, we shall be reunited in the life beyond and enjoy the sweetest communion with the departed, as well as with him who loved us so that he purchased our life through his own death. You can see Luther's, I could read much more, but he's, he's comforting his friend with truths about eternity and truths in the wake of death. Earlier that same year, four years before Luther's dying, and in the same year, just months before Justice Jonas's wife has died, Luther had buried his own 13-year-old daughter, Magdalena, which completely wrecked him. Suffering, typically, you may have noticed this in others around you, you may notice it in yourself. What suffering typically does, and what is very tempting for us to do in our suffering, is it turns us inward. And then we isolate from others. But here's God's design. When I suffer, God means to meet me there. And there in my suffering provide a special gift which he has designed and assigned specifically to me in the gift of comfort, which sustains me and nourishes me and changes me and grows me. And God's design in giving me that gift of comfort is that now I'm equipped to offer that same gift to somebody else when they suffer. So all of that together, God's design, it sort of forms this circle, if you will, of comfort. I suffer God comes to me, then I take that comfort and I give it to another. And then they take that comfort which God has used me to give to them to then give to another when they're suffering. And maybe eventually it comes full circle when they come back around and comfort me. You see, just like Luther with his friend Justice Jonas. 
This is the ministry of comfort. You can see it here in our passage. Verse 4, God who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. The comfort of God, in other words, which he gives to you or me in our suffering, is not just for us. It's for somebody else. It's for us and it's for somebody else. Verse 6 says, if we are afflicted, Paul says, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. The member of our church who is the most fruitful in walking with others who are struggling with anxiety, which is a big thing. It's a big thing in America. It's certainly a big thing in Northern Virginia. The member in our church who is the most fruitful in walking with others who are struggling with anxiety is a person who has dealt with bouts of paralyzing, cannot function anxiety for years, and has got, found God's comfort there. One of the most singularly fruitful women in our church, in terms of gospel fruit, especially among other women, is a woman who longed for and prayed for marriage for years and then for decades, and who is now in her late 50s and single, and has found comfort and even contentment in Christ. The first time I was in a group setting with her, she was speaking to a bunch of younger women, and she said, and I've not forgotten it since, she said, you know, if you live long enough, life strips most everything away, and you find that Jesus is the only tree you can lean on. And that's her story. And she learned that through unmet longings and finding God there. Remember church planner Joseph. Maybe he should do something else. Maybe that's the best way to love and care for his family. That is certainly sometimes the case, and I don't want to dismiss that. But also maybe his present sufferings are an opportunity for him to meet the God of all comfort in a new and powerful way and receive the gift of comfort in a new and powerful way to enrich his ministry to a church full of fellow sufferers. If, if I could just say, if I could make this personal, when you meet King's Cross Presbyterian, when you meet weakness and suffering in Casey or in other future pastors, elders, you must not begrudge them for that. Paul in 2 Corinthians holds up his weaknesses and his sufferings to commend his ministry to them. Boy, how often do we turn that on its head? We want a pastor who's so gifted and unflinching and shows no weakness whatsoever. That is the opposite of gospel world, gospel ministry, you see. When your pastor, your pastors encounter or display their own weaknesses, that is an opportunity for you to pray for them and encourage them to find more strength in the comforting God that they might then turn around and comfort you. People just want gifted ministers of the gospel, much better to want tested ministers of the gospel who have been tested and proven faithful. Some of you here this morning may be suffering. Maybe in one of the ways I mentioned earlier, maybe some other way. And I want to encourage you to hang on and find God's comfort because not only can you find it, but because somebody else in here might need your comfort from God for them. And the gift of comfort that you might only find through faith during this suffering, and there is no other way to find it, which you can then give for them. That is the ministry of comfort.
And so we come finally forth to the hope of comfort. The hope of comfort. Now, everything I've said so far, I think it works. Some of you are smiling at me while I'm preaching. I can feel that. It'll preach. When you suffer, God will comfort. That'll preach. But there's a problem, I think. And the problem is vagueness. When you suffer, God will comfort. Amen. But how? With what? What is the comfort? How do we find it? Is it just there? And how do I know it's there when I don't even really know what it is other than this vague notion of comfort? If you don't define those details, if you just leave it vague, then this passage in this sermon is, is kind of nothing more than a, a kind of hallmark card of Christian cliches. God will meet you there. A member of my church recently told me that she had to get up and walk out of the service on a Sunday when I was preaching on the love of Christ. She suffered horribly, horribly for decades. This is a different person than the last one. A lot of suffering in the local church. That's why we are the people gathering together to help each other on this pilgrimage to the land where there is no suffering. But for now, a lot of suffering. So this lady told me she suffered decades and decades. She told me as I was preaching on the love of Christ that she had to get up and walk out in the back because she suffered so long and has been so miserable. And as she said to me with tears in her eyes, again, where was God in all this? Me preaching on the love of Christ actually, if you can imagine it, triggered her. And she couldn't hear it, and she walked out. Clichés might work for those of us who've had calm or have calm and happy lives, but not for her. She needs definitions. She needs clarity. And so do the rest of you, too. At least you will when your dark day comes. When I started working on this sermon this week, I just planned to preach verses 3 through 7. I wanted to preach that because I thought it encouraged you. God of comfort. We're sufferers. And that's what I want to do when I guest preach. I don't want to bring the sledgehammer. I, bring, I save that for my church. I want to bring you encouragement. It's a passage I've been thinking about recently, so I was excited to preach it. But the more I read and studied it this week, I became convinced that I couldn't preach verses 3 through 7 without also getting to verses 8 through 11. Because actually, I think they go together. Paul gives this paragraph of comfort, which we've covered already. Verses 3 through 7. Amazing. Ten times comfort. And then he tacks on this little personal story. To the end of it, which you can always almost miss how they're attached. And in fact, I think this story is what provides the definitions that we need for what we've already covered. The details and the specifics we need are all in this story. I know we've already read it, but let me turn your attention to verses 8 through 11 again. Let me just read it for you quickly so we can close all on the same page of clarity. Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. What's Paul saying there? We live our lives on margins. And sometimes for different reasons, those margins are really razor thin. And when they're razor thin, it's in that moment that if something goes wrong, we are undone. Does anybody know what I'm talking about right now? No? Let me describe it for you, all right? I once flew, right before I moved from Oklahoma City 
back to the East Coast. I once flew one final time from Oklahoma City to Raleigh, and I flew, I connected through Baltimore. So from Baltimore down to Raleigh, it's a 45-minute flight. Nothing but a skip and a hop over a little bit of water and a little bit of land, and we're home. Easy. Wrong. The flight got delayed because of thunderstorms and lightning. We were exhausted. Traveling with small kids, awful. When it finally did take off, we bored, we'd take off. The most intense turbulence I've ever experienced in my entire life. So our baby at the time was crying, going ballistic. Mid-flight, my two older kids were sitting by me, throw up all over me and all over the entire airplane. But then we landed. And I had one thing on my mind, just get me off of this plane, get me away from all these people who now hate me and hate my children. Who hates children? These people hated my children. Get me out of these disgusting clothes and get me through with this day and let's try it all again over tomorrow. You ever been there? So that's me living on a really razor thin margin in that moment. You see, I'm, I've taken, I think, all I'm capable of taking. But we landed. So my in-laws pick us up. We load up in cars. We drive through an intense thunderstorm, crazy winds, 20 minutes drive to their house. Simple, easy, wrong. We make it to their street, we make it to within a couple hundred yards of their driveway, and then my father-in-law slams on the brakes, full stop, there's a massive tree knocked over and blocking the entire street, which, it's t- which had taken out a power line with it. That's not good. 15-minute detour, you have to go around the back way to the house, and we finally get there. We walk inside, we get our bags out, nobody's speaking to anybody at this point. And their power was out. And my friends, that was the moment. That was the moment. No air conditioning. It's summertime. No shower. I'm covered in bile. No end to this day. That was the moment that completely broke me. Had God offered me a painless death and entry into glory... I'd have seriously, I would have not talked to my wife and I would have seriously thought about it. Have you ever been there? That's somewhat trivial, but have you ever been there in trivial or very serious ways? You're down, you got nothing left. You, you don't feel like you can get up and then you get kicked. Surviving by the thinnest thread of a margin and then a piece of straw floating in the air lands squarely with the wind's help on the camel's back, which is you, and that's it. You're done. Maybe that's some of you this morning. It's not clear what exactly Paul's affliction was he speaks of here in Asia. It could have been the mob in Ephesus we read about in Acts 19, but that's really unclear. But what is clear is that Paul received the sentence of death, he says. That might be literal. It might be figurative. Either way, the point is the same. Death seemed a given to Paul at this point. And Paul hit that point. His margins were exhausted. He couldn't get up. That's what he means when he says we were burdened beyond our strength. He means we were down and we couldn't get up and then it got worse. And it was in that moment when the affliction was too much, when it all seemed over, it was in that moment that the God of comfort showed up bringing fresh supplies. And what was the comfort? I want you to look carefully here. What was the comfort that God showed up to bring to Paul? Verse 9, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, 
but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. He will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul was on the brink. Paul could literally smell death. And there on the brink, God showed up, the resurrecting God. The God who raises the dead, Paul says. Paul is not talking about the comfort of God here. This subjective feeling of, God's got this. And I just remembered. That's good, but that's not good enough. This was better. Paul's talking about the resurrection of the dead. That's what God supplied in that moment. He brought the power of the gospel and especially of the resurrection to Paul who was tasting death. You see, there's a principle in the gospel, and the principle goes like this. The world does not understand it. It's above and beyond our world. But the principle is this. In Jesus, death produces life. Because, why? Because Jesus has entered into death, and he's tampered with death. Because Jesus has entered into the chains of death, and then ruptured them, resurrecting to life. 2 Corinthians 4, later in this same letter, Paul says, verse 10, we are always carrying in us, in our bodies, the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You see that principle? Death producing life. Jesus, now us, death producing life. Resurrection hope, resurrection power. That's what the God of comfort brings. And so when your dark day comes, And it will come for each of us unless the Lord Jesus returns. Beware of looking within. Beware of looking to your own strength, to your own resources. Even Paul, you see here, had to be taught in that moment. He had to be rebuked and reminded, don't look to ourselves. That's a dangerous thing to do. Look rather to the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who raises the dead, who shows up in the darkest hour and who produces life from death, who will deliver us from this affliction, perhaps in this life, as he did Paul this time, that we might now rejoice and comfort others with what we've received, but surely in death, where we'll be comforted forever. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray for the one in our midst this morning, who is suffering in any host of ways, seen or unseen. Oh God, I pray that you would meet them now, powerfully, by your Holy Spirit, reminding them, persuading them once again of your great love for them and your resurrecting power to deliver Even if we do taste death, you will still deliver us with your resurrection power. God, I pray for any who are perhaps comfortable for the wrong reasons, comfortable without the Lord Jesus. Oh God, we pray that you would graciously expose to their hearts now the dangerous folly of that. And Lord, we pray that you would show yourself to them. Show yourself to each of us, we pray, oh God. Meet us, we pray today. You would help us to know even more the God of all comfort, that we might comfort others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.